0: welcome to another episode of industry standard with me barry katz uh before i start this podcast i want to thank all of you guys for being so supportive and so incredible Uh, i can't even tell you how humbling it is how many of you listen how many of you have subscribed and how many of you have passed it along to your friends uh uh, I, you know, when I started this thing, all I wanted to do was do something that I felt wasn't being done, which is talking to what I perceived to be the stars behind the scenes who really make things happen, who are an inspiration to everybody working in every kind of job all across the world of how to get from point A to point B and sometimes at point A when you're at your lowest point and how to get to point B at your highest point. And uh, today's episode is no exception. And as I often like to do with the cold opens, I like to tell a story sort of about myself that sort of relates to uh, the guest in some six degrees of separation way. My guest today, Larry Little, who um, one of the shows that he worked on, and I believe he uh, either uh, uh, overseed during his time at Warner Brothers in a big, big way, was uh, one of my favorite shows uh, back in the day, Night Court. And uh, I believe that was on NBC, uh, and the president at the time of NBC, uh, the chairman, actually, uh, was a very famous uh, man, very powerful man, named Fred Silverman. And um, I never had any contact with Fred. I'd only heard of Fred, and I was just representing young comedians who I hoped would move the needle... And I hope that people would notice. And one of the young comedians that I was working with uh, was a guy who uh, named Jeffrey Ross, who you guys know of as probably the roast master General. But at the time, uh, he wasn't really doing that much roasting because uh, we hadn't brought the roast to Comedy Central yet, I don't believe, at that time. But he had done a one-person show that he created that I thought was really, really special. And for those of you artists out there who are listening to the podcast, um, if ever you're out there and you want to make something happen, you have to figure out a way to do it in a way that creates your own voice and gets to a situation where you can present something to people and after it's done, they actually look at each other or whoever they're with and say, holy shit, that was amazing. Uh, I have to tell my friends about this I have to I have to pass the word along and Jeff created a show called take a banana for the ride which was a really touching and funny one person show um, about his relationship with his grandfather who was basically the antithesis of him and the reverse roles of how it would normally be in society. So he lived with his grandfather. His grandfather was wearing rock and roll t-shirts and going out at night and getting laid with women with, with walkers and tennis balls and all this kind of thing. And Jeff wasn't getting any action and he wasn't be able to socialize well and he didn't really have the game that his grandfather had. And it was their story of how they uh, their relationship grew and built uh, all the way through until uh, his grandfather's death, and it was a really beautiful, funny, but unbelievably touching one person show that was uh, you know made you cry at the end as well and I remember I invited all the industry to uh, his one person show, and we uh unbelievably we didn't get that many offers as a matter of fact, we only got one offer. But back then, I think the way I thought how negotiating should go is why tell the other people that you only have one person that's interested? And I didn't. And when the other people asked me, when I talked to them what was happening, I said, oh, boy, everybody's interested in this thing. Boy, they're really, really after it. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, I don't know how much longer uh, you got to move quickly on this. And I would say that to everybody, I could, but everybody kept passing except one person and one place that didn't pass, which was Disney. And they gave him an extraordinary deal to develop his own television show and um, and develop a pilot. And they were visionaries. And even though Jeff's pilot did not go and didn't make it happen, Uh, He's proven over and over again that he's a guy you can bank on and is always funny, always creates holy shit moments, always blows people away. But at the time, if I'm not mistaken, um, I got a phone call from a guy who was a producer at the time and not a network executive anymore, and it was none other than Fred Silverman. And when he called, I thought, you know, it was literally like God was calling me because, you know, you just, you, you, this is a guy that was bigger than life that I had never heard of. It was like getting a call from like the president of the United States and almost wanting to hang up the phone because it was a practical joke. But he called up and he said, Yes, I love Jeff. I'd love to do something with him. Uh, I think he's really funny and I think I can make something happen. Meet me at the Bel Air Country Club for lunch on Thursday with Jeff. I'm really excited about it. And uh I had just recently uh had a deal at Disney and I had done something really stupid which I'll probably talk about more on another episode. But my first day at Disney, I looked down from my glass offices on the penthouse floor that they put me in Sinbad's old office. And I looked down, and I saw a lot with some cars. And I saw what looked like a Night Rider Ferrari. <laughs> I walked down my first day over across the street. There was a sign on this Ferrari for $24,999, and I bought it right then and there. And this car meant a lot to me, but unfortunately... Not a very reliable car, because it was a 1980 Ferrari. As Jeff Ross once eloquently said in a joke uh, that I will tell later. <laughs> so I'm on my way to the meeting with Fred Silverman. Jeff, I tell her to get early. And um, I'm driving my car down Pico Boulevard. I hit a pothole. <laughs> the car explodes Smoke everywhere. I'm perpendicular on Pico Boulevard, broken down. No phones anywhere. Police come, taking a report. People are all around, and I'm panicking because I can't make this meeting with Fred Silverman and Jeff Ross, and I have no way to get a hold of them because there's no cell phones whatsoever. And so... I'm just beside myself. The car gets towed. I have to stay with the car. I finally get back to my office. It's like 3.30. I call Jeff to apologize. He says, no problem, Barry. Shit happens. It was a great meeting. And I called Fred Silverman, my next call. And uh, he picks up the phone, and I'm like... Uh, Hey, Mr. Silverman, I'm, I'm so sorry I didn't make the meeting. Uh, my car broke down. And he said, Who the fuck are you? How dare you not show up to a meeting with me? You are the most unprofessional person I have ever known or dealt with. And I will never, ever do business with you again. <laughs> and he hung up on me. And as he hung up on me, I thought to myself, this business will squash you like a bug. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to Berrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in
1: three, two... We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with cats that see me. Infections caused by jacuzzi water.
0: I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking.
1: Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? I'm huh? on the
0: air! All right, everybody. I am very excited for this episode uh, with my guest. He's an amazing man. This guy has done everything. He started in Chicago, he worked in television, he worked in politics, he's worked uh, at production companies, he's been involved in shows like Head of the Class, Life Goes On, Murphy Brown. Uh, I mean, he's been involved with the Diversity Award for work on the Parkers, Moesha, Judge Joe Brown. Uh, he had his own uh, company called Big Ticket Television, where he basically, in my mind, created a genre of reality-slash-court shows that are unprecedented. And to me, uh, the motherload of all court shows which he was involved with and still is on to this day, Judge Judy. Uh, we have so much to talk about. This guy is unbelievable in his wealth of information and his stories and the things he's been involved with. You're gonna really love it. Please welcome my guest, Larry Little.
1: Hey, great introduction, Barry. Thank you. I'm uh, flattered. Good to be here, too.
0: Uh, honored to be here. I'm honored. Myself, This is I've known you for a long time and I will say this about you, and I say this not about a lot of people, um, you treated me like I belonged, mm-hmm. even when I didn't belong. And I'll always remember that. And when you were at Big Ticket t- t- Television, I'd come in there with probably every month with a different pitch, a different idea, a different thing going. And we did a lot of development deals together. <laughs> and <laughs> I remember those deals. And, and I was, you know, I used to get frustrated because sometimes the deals weren't, necessarily the uh, wealth that some of the other studios were, but I always knew that if I was doing something with you and your team that I was going to get the best attention and the smartest people and it was going to be an extraordinary project, and I'll always remember that. Oh,
1: I I appreciate that, and right back at you, buddy.
0: All right, so what i like to do in the beginning, if you don't mind, is I'd like to ask you, like, take me way back to... Before you ever had any thought of anything having to do with this business whatsoever, and take me to the moment where something happened and you just said, okay, I'm going to start getting involved in this. Uh, Take me back. How old were you? Where were you? What kind of lifestyle did your family live? And. What was the first germ of an idea or something that brought you into this world?
1: Okay, I'm I'm going to really surprise you with this answer here. I was uh, maybe four years old, three or four years old, and it was in the uh, it was in the late fifties, and I had an aunt who was a White House news correspondent, and uh, she knew the producer of a show called Howdy Doody. Wow! And when I was four years old, four years old. I was on the Howdy Doody show in the Peanut Gallery.
0: You were on the show. On the show,
1: and and do
0: you did, have the original footage? They,
1: they they don't have it because they burn those things. Okay. They they and you know and I looked when I should I, when, burn some of my shows. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I burned a lot of my shows. And I remember when I was I you know how you're fleeting in your memory, I was supposed to do they they did live commercials in those days, and one of the sponsors was Welch's grape produce. Yeah. And they plied me with Welch's grapefruit juice beforehand so I'd be able to describe how good it tasted.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And in the middle of the show, I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and Buffalo Bob was the host. And I kept saying, Buffalo Bob, Buffalo Bob, shut up, kid. And literally, and I, and, and, and I remember this. The only thing I remember, I had to go to the bathroom so bad when it came time of the commercial, I went off set, and they took me to the bathroom. And I remember, that. I remember going through the studio. It was on the, on the west side of New York City, and it was in the late 50s, I was a tiny little kid, and the next thing I knew to answer your question, um, when I knew that I had an affinity for television, um, I, I would sit in my room in, our, in, in in New York where I grew up in our apartment, and my mother would come into the room and I'd be addicted to watching television, and she would call me, uh, that she said, you're gonna become a TV moron. You're gonna become <laughs> a TV moron. And when I got my first big bonus check, I reminded my mother how much that was worth to me. Uh, and, and, and But it was an interesting thing, when I watched TV, I wouldn't just, I I knew I wanted to be in TV. I knew I didn't want to be in the set. I mean, I knew I didn't want to be an actor. And I would watch the credits, and I would watch the writers' names and producers' names. And when I started out after school in the late 70s, I was an agent in ICM, and I met a lot of the old writers from the 60s whose names I remembered from a kid, and they were like bigger than life to me, much like you would describe Fred Silverman. So I knew I had an affinity, truly, for television when I was an adolescent. And it only manifested when I knew I couldn't go to law school, which is what my parents want. All nice Jewish boys, either a doctor or a lawyer. And I had, no, I had no, uh, no, no real ability in science, so I was going to be a lawyer, but I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to be in TV, and I knew it. So it was, it was as if it was predestined for me.
0: Wow. So uh, take me through then what was your first entry into this business?
1: Well, I went to, I went to graduate school at Northwestern in Chicago, and I did that to avoid law school. And I, I I went to graduate school in journalism at the Medill School of Journalism, and I actually got a job offer to work on TV as an on-air broadcaster in, in Wisconsin, but I didn't want to do that. And an I,
0: on-air broadcaster. Yeah, I, I, well, how did that happen when you didn't want to be on air?
1: Well, I did, Well, I, I I was interested in the news business, uh-huh. and I was going to be. I had a job offer to work in Green Bay, Wisconsin, uh, as an on-air investigative reporter not much to investigate in Green Bay. <laughs> and I went to this undergraduate school in, in Madison, Wisconsin. I didn't want to go back to Green Bay. I didn't want to leave Chicago. At the time I had a girlfriend there, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I ended up working for a radio station, writing advertising copy, selling advertising uh, uh, time, and going to all the Chicago Bulls basketball games, because we were the carrier of the Chicago Bulls basketball games. So I, I started out in radio in Chicago, and about a year later went to work for NBC in Chicago. Got
0: it, so you were basically, had some great opportunities right away, and you were uh, dating beautiful women at the time Well too. I was dating a
1: beautiful woman at the time, and I didn't want to leave Chicago, and I, and you know, you're 22 years old, and you're, you're making judgments about, when you look back on it, you know, who knows how it would have ended up, but I decided I wanted to stay in Chicago, I love TV, and I became a broadcaster, which served me incredibly well later on in my career, because I understood the dynamics of broadcasting, ratings, shares, audience, dem- demographics.
0: Could you explain to our audience, you know, just so those who don't know what ratings and shares and those sure. things mean in the marketplace? Because sure. I think that's important. Because we don't get to talk about that it, that it, often.
1: I think it's I think it's essentially important. It gives you a sense when you hear it. Does a three rating? What does that mean? That means a three rate. A rating is per- is the percentage of all TV homes. Okay. So there are about 130 million television homes. So simple mathematics: if the show did a three rating, that means there were 3.9 million television homes watching the show. Now, when they say it did a 10 share, it means that all the all the television shows that were uh, all the uh, all the homes that were using their TVs at the time. Okay. So if there are 130 million in the universe, which is the rating, but there were only a hundred. Million watching TV, a ten share would mean that ten million homes were watching. So a share is the percentage right. of those TVs that are turned on. That's right. And that's how it works. And and, and can
0: I ask you something? Yeah. Just put it because I don't want you to lose your train of thought. But I think this is really something that I I don't really understand, and I think a lot of people in our audience don't understand. So the ratings uh, all through the years were done by one company. Correct. The Nielsen Company. Correct. Uh, who apparently put these special boxes in people's houses mm-hmm. all across the country. Right. Yet not one person that I've ever met in my entire lifetime has ever owned a Nielsen box.
1: I, I, I was actually approached by Nielsen uh, in 1984, when I was at Warner Brothers, to be a Nielsen family, and I and I wrote back that I was unable to do it because I worked in the industry. So I actually, I know a couple of other people. It was the most second most closely guarded secret to the formula of Coca-Cola, who the Nielsen families were.
0: Yeah, and so what I don't understand is that it's always been widely disputed, you know, a show that's popular, that seems to be popular, that people go crazy for, That doesn't pull a rating. And then it's proven later on when things change in the rating system that it does. An example of that might be, let's say, Family Guy, Mm -hmm. which launched in 1999 under uh, Doug Herzog at Fox. He didn't value the show. He didn't like the show. It wasn't really getting a great rating. Um, And he did everything to kill the show, which he finally did. And he admitted to doing on the podcast here. But he's uh, uh, since had a great relationship with Seth MacFarlane, and he's uh, hosted this roast. And then it comes back uh, a number of years later and proves through a different sort of audience rating system, not just the Nielsen's, that it is viable. And how it proves that is when it goes on DVD... And it sells, God knows, like five million DVDs right. or whatever right. it was. So the point I wanted to make to you, and I wanted to ask you, and I hope you remember to go back to your story, is that in our in the day and age we're in, where we have everybody has a cable box, or most people have a cable box, and it, whatever whatever cable you know provider they have, Dish or Time Warner right. Cable or whatever direct it is, TV, or Direct right. TV, or even if they have an i. ITV system or whatever it is, or if even if they look at stuff on the internet, it seems to me that it could be very easy to monitor what everyone in the world is watching, uh-huh. and then we would know definitively. And to me, it's they say it's a privacy issue, but I don't care if somebody knows that I'm watching, you know, uh, an episode of Arrested Development or Saved by the Bell or you know, Candlepins for Cash. You know, what, why doesn't that happen? Well,
1: you know, it's so interesting you say that because, you know, there were so few Nielsen families there. I think that at the time when we were talking about Nielsen, there were 2,000 families that represented the entire United States. And we all used to sit around saying this is baloney, this stuff is not real. And one day when we're going to be fully computer, you know, connected and the world's going to be one, we're going to really be able to know absolutely who's watching what. And and to a degree we have that now. To a degree, we have that. And I think at the end of the day... Well, you have
0: it in the... the, And I want you to explain this, and then we'll go back to the new system of how they determine uh, how people watch from their DVR. And so now what's happening, if those of you in our audience don't know this, television shows are getting a higher rating now of DVR viewers than they are when it airs directly on the television. Not only, and now they count and they combine both now. not
1: only DVR viewers, but other platforms. You That's can, right. You can go HBO Go. Yeah. You know, so what they do is, so so what happened is the providers of product would say, well, wait a minute, I have a show on Fox, and I know this show is popular, but the rating doesn't reflect that. I know it's popular. And so there was a real rebellion by the providers of the product who laid out a lot of cash to say, wait a minute, if Fox owns the show or licenses the show, and people watch it on their Fox TV station, but three days later they watch it in repeats on DVR, or they they watch it on, you know, they, 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 they video recorded it and then they watch it, or they watch it online, whether it's through Hulu or any of the other platforms, we should get credit for that. Madison Avenue should pay for that fox should get revenue for that and it would re- reflect on me if i'm investing in the show so i could have syndication rights so that there was a, a seminal uh, change in the industry where they now count all the platforms of distribution to create the rating and i think that is a that is a major sea change and it is a sea change that 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 allowed the Advertisers to pay more money for the networks as well as the the studios.
0: Yeah, but what, what's weird is that there was a situation where you I Mean, let's say the year before that or two years before that there were shows getting canceled yeah. Because they weren't adding these things in and, and because there wasn't were...
1: a movement towards that and, yeah. I, and I think that well, you know when they when there were revolutions you have to mobilize the masses in a political sense and similarly here, the masses, meaning the, the Warner Brothers, the, the, the Foxes, the NBCs, the Universals, etc., massed together. And, both, and it was interesting. Oftentimes, the, the supplier and the networks are antagonistic. Here, they are protagonistic because everybody benefited getting a true rating and a true sampling of how big the audience was. So this revolution occurred, and it caused Nielsen, who is the primary still rating source... Uh, to recognize that there were other platforms by which people were watching the show, and that audience also needed and should be counted. And Madison Avenue bristled because they, they, they were getting free viewers. Now they have to pay for it. So the the studios and the networks banded together, and Madison Avenue had a problem, but that's just the way it is now.
0: Do you know for our audience what happened and how all these competitive networks that literally are trying to kill each other and beat each other, every network president and chairman got together and said, hey, we're putting our foot down. We're counting all of these things from now on. What summit? What took place to make that happen? Who organized that? Well, I How don't did think there was any one
1: person, but I think ultimately what would have happened that uh, that everybody would have had a problem with the, the, the viability of Nielsen mm-hmm. was at question. They weren't giving reliable audience measurements. And I think that uh, I don't – nobody has come forth to say I was the pioneer and I motivated the change. I think, you know, you look at the, the – the, the, every industry has got their leaders and their visionaries. And you look at people like Bob Iger. You look at people earlier on. Bob, Michael, Bob
0: Iger, who's the chairman of uh, ABC. Yeah, Michael
1: uh, uh, Eisner, who was his predecessor. You look at people like you, – you look at people who are visionaries in the business and who motivate the business. They were the leading charge Bob Daly, Barry Meyer, Warner Brothers. These are people that said enough of this, and that's what really caused, I think, the change, and, and it's a significant change.
0: Got it. So that was a little uh, digression. Yeah. So let's go back. You're in Chicago, I believe. You're uh, with a beautiful woman. <laughs> uh, you're doing your thing, and then what's the next step for you?
1: Then I uh, came out to LA. Why? Uh, I came out because I was working for uh, a company called Metromedia, which was the predecessor company to Fox. Mm-hmm. And I was working uh, for one of their TV stations in Chicago and they moved me out to Los Angeles where I went to work at KTTV Channel 11, which is the Fox station now. And I did that for a year and hated what I was doing as a broadcaster. Uh, and I became a literary agent. ICM.
0: So, how do you go from a broadcaster to getting a gig as a literary a agent in one of the Barry. biggest, biggest agencies? Yeah, at the in time, the world. it was the
1: biggest agency. CA was in their embryonic stage. William Morris was uh, venerable, which is a which is a polite term for being fuddy duddy. Yeah. And uh, and ICM was clearly what CAA and William Morris endeavor are today. And it was a tough thing. I bullshitted my way in. You know, I had a uh, I had a master's degree in journalism. Uh, I had, you know, I was, you know, I was, I had some literary chops. Uh, and I was interested in writers. But normally when
0: you go to an agency... You work in the mailroom. You have to and you work, work in the mailroom for a year and well, work your way up. You I, went right directly, I, I and you had your own desk and office and your own, own assistant. I had my own
1: desk, and I had my own assistant, although I was in you my You are initial, an unbelievable yeah, bullshitter. I was a great bullshitter, and I bullshitted my way in, and I took an enormous pay cut in those days. Now, when you
0: said it was an honor to be here, was that bullshitting? No, that was sincere. Okay, just check.
1: Well, well, the bullshitting was when I got in the business. Okay. <laughs> Um, that's what happened. So I. I so what do you my...
0: do? You, you so you're a literary agent and explain to our audience what a literary agent does. Well, Not liter- that you did anything back then. But. Well,
1: a literary agent represents. In in the case of ICM in the in the early '80s or late '70s, uh, represents uh, writers directors and producers mm-hmm. and they, in
0: television and film in television
1: and film and I was in the TV business I had and at the time you talk about other seminal changes in the 80s and 90s TV was like a stepchild to everybody you know if you weren't in the movie business you know you were a lowercase guy and now we see what's happened in the 21st century being in the movie business for the most is a lowercase guy and all the major media companies are television companies and if they could get out of the film business they probably would they can't yeah. Uh so but but I got into TV. I love T V hearkening back to my days in Howdy Doody. And I represent television <laughs> writers and directors.
0: So tell me somebody who you represented that actually became a force in television. Well, I
1: represented a guy who created a show called Saint Elsewhere, Josh Brand. Wow. And when and later That was on,
0: Howie Mandel's first show, correct? Right. Am I
1: correct. Howie Mandel. He was had hair.
0: He had hair and yeah. he was a young comedian yeah, who was, one of the first uh young comedians who actually booked a dramatic right. television show. Yeah,
1: and it was, yes, correct. And uh, I, I had a director named Harry Weiner went on and had a great television career, and uh, and he did some films and stuff, and I had a bunch of writers who went on and created television shows. So
0: you bullshitted your way in, and you're doing okay. You're making money for the company. Yeah, I'm
1: making money for the company, but I looked at the landscape, and I said, well, wait a minute. Out there is 100% of the money. Agents get 10%. Other guys get 90%. I want the 90%. So I, uh, when you're a young agent and you're out there, uh, you get a lot of job offers, generally from studios. So I ultimately got a job when offer.
0: When you're a young agent and you're moving the needle, and you're you get the needle. offers. And I when was moving the needle. you're a young agent needle. who is not making your amateurized office uh, money and your phones and your messengers, Correct. you don't get offers. Correct. Well,
1: I was moving the needle enough to get offers. And uh, I ultimately got a job offer to work at
0: Warner Brothers, where I worked for 12 years. Got it. And how did you start at Warner Brothers? What was was your first gig there? My
1: first gig was I was the vice president of comedy development.
0: Great. So you're the vice president of comedy development, so take me Everybody back. in
1: Hollywood's a vice president. If you're an in industry and you're vice president, you're somebody <laughs> of substance. In Hollywood, everybody's a vice president, although when you tell your mother and your, you know, your father that now you're a vice president of Warner Brothers, my mother thought that I was the
0: president of Warner Brothers. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is why that is uh, for those of you <laughs> who are listening and are part of the podcast here. Credits don't cost anything. Correct, and so you want to make people feel like they're valuable, and and everybody wants to feel valuable, including myself. You know, so if you can give somebody a credit and it doesn't hurt anybody and it doesn't correct do anything that's horrible to, and uh, disrupt the apple cart, then you do that, correct. and that's what the the television business was was based on back then, where they correct. do people like that. And so, and so, tell me your. Tell me some of your first pitches, the first pitch that you were involved in. You might not have been the guy, but you were in the room. The first pitch that you got or was a show that came in. People were trying to sell it. They didn't know, and it became a huge hit.
1: I'll answer that slightly differently. I I can tell you one of my early shows at Warner Brothers that people scoffed at, that we were indomitable in our desire to get it done, and it not only got on TV; it became the number one show on television called Growing Pains. Wow! And it was uh, every step along the way; it was a joke. Um, we had a nice little script, but Michael Fox was doing a show at NBC. Michael J. Fox. Uh, Michael J. Fox was doing a show at NBC that was very much like this, and it was very successful. And uh, so, Growing Pains now comes, and uh, we couldn't we couldn't find the male lead, and we literally started a production without the lead. And somebody have to go. So you cast
0: every other role. Every other role,
1: Kirk Cameron, Joanna Kearns, who was there,
0: and and I imagine what happens. uh, Just so you know how this process works for casting a show. Well, first of all, these people, whoever the writer was who wrote the show, pitched to Larry and his team, and then what happened was that team decided, okay, let's make a deal with them. They normally write them a check. Either it's a development deal or they write them a script, a check for the script they wrote with incentives if it gets bought as a pilot at the network and then and then episodic fees for their Correct. episodes that they write and for running the television show as an executive producer. Correct. So they make the deal, then they go around to all the networks, pitch to the networks, and the network that bought it was the network
1: that bought Growing Pains was ABC. ABC and Family and so, Ties as I had mentioned. Michael J. Fox's show was already on the air. Yeah, television's and, a derivative medium. If a genre works, you find it cropping up elsewhere, and we were a classic example of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and that happens all the time with shows that you see on television Correct. that you you know you you watch. Let's say The Office, and then a show like Parks and Recreation comes Correct. on, and you're like. Well, Wait a second, this seems like it's the whole style of, of the office and but it stays on for six years and and that's Correct. what happens all the time. So So okay so what happens next is after it's uh, sold to the network, and the network uh, gets the script so the network gets and, the they script and they decide whether they're going to buy know, it or not. And then they go forward the to network make reads a pilot the
1: script and they say, you know what this scripts surprisingly good. Uh, the guy that created it, Neil Marlins, went on to create Wonder Years.
0: Yes, Marlins in Black. Right, um, correct. Well,
1: she was, yes, they were at the, she, she wasn't there at the beginning, but she was certainly there at the end. And uh, so the network reads the script, and they say, you know what? We're going to pick this
0: up. Okay. And so the decision to pick it up means that they have to write a check now. For a pilot. For a pilot, which means they have to write a check for every line item every person that's cast everybody Correct. now the studio that's a
1: seven figure proposition yeah
0: now the studio they have this studio there because the studio is there also to deficit some of the financing every studio deal at that time was a little bit different here and there depending on what the studio and negotiated deals that they had with people but essentially tell our audience like if let's say let's just say back then The pilot would cost a million dollars with every single thing from cradle to grave, from the casting director all the way to the final edit. Correct approximately back then, how much was the studio Warner Brothers paying out of that $1 million, and how much was the if, network?
1: If you use the million-dollar figure, and they were generally larger than that, but that's a good way to, to start it. In those days, uh, we, Warner Brothers, would deficit 30% of it.
0: 30%. So we
1: would have in the million-dollar model maybe $300,000 out. Got it. Now and you ask the question, why would they do that? Well, the simple reason they would do that is because in those days, and here's another seminal change, we owned the copyright. The network merely licensed it.
0: Explain to our audience what that means.
1: That means the network said, we will pay you X number of hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars a week for our right to air your show. Called
0: the license fee.
1: Licensing fee. To air your show in its original form and then get two or three reruns during the year. So you would get three, three runs of each episode.
0: And then after the third run, if they ran it again, there would be a payment. There would
1: be another payment, and oftentimes they did that pre-negotiated payment. And the goal in those days was to get 100 episodes.
0: That's right. A hundred episodes back then... It was the magic number. ...was the magic number to get to syndication where you would sell the show... To the local a- a- TV to stations. ...to the local TV stations, which now there's 212 of them. Correct. And you'd go to a famous, famous convention called NATPI, which stands for...
1: The uh, National Association of Television Programming Executives.
0: That's right. And you'd sell your wares and you'd try to clear it in as much of the country as you could... Right. And to give you an idea, let's just take Growing Pains for an example. You'd go to Natby, and you'd have a successful show, and you'd go to sell it. And even though you might get what seemed like an inconsequential amount of money from an area, let's say like uh, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, let's say they only gave you... um, um, Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for your hundred episodes, and you're like, Jesus Christ! I mean, there's nothing here. How are we ever going to make the money back? This is crazy. This business sucks. And then you think to yourself, Wait a second! If I can sell uh, 150 more markets at two hundred fifty thousand, uh, we're going to be making millions of dollars. Well,
1: I'll give you. A, I'll give you an example. I, you, you would say, so you syndicate the show, and you syndicate a show like Growing Pains. And you could make on a syndication each episode. You'd aggregate the monies, and you could make as much as on the highest end, and depending on the shows, four or five million dollars an episode. That's so, right. if you had again, these are simple terms. If you had um, uh, two and a half men today, and you have 150 episodes. Okay, and forget the fact that they changed their lead, which is an, an anomaly and it sometimes jeopardizes the value of the asset.
0: From Dick York to Dick Sargent Correct. and Correct. bewitched. And the, the first time it ever happened. Correct.
1: Good. You're a historian. And and you would sell two and a half men, I make it up for four million dollars an episode. You times that by the hundred and fifty episodes, and now you've got a now you've got an asset that's worth over six hundred million dollars. Now The studio over those seven or eight years to get those episodes has put out tens of millions of dollars in what you call deficit financing. They get their money back. So now let's just say in the model, they put out over the last eight years, a hundred million dollars in costs. They've sold it for 600 million dollars. Now there's $500 million left, and then you start divvying up the money. It's a ver- what I'm giving you is the simplistic version. There are a lot of other No, no, this is, this is what I
0: want our audience to know. But that's
1: how basically how it works. So you say the network, whether it's and certainly the broadcast network still today, is like going to Vegas with a lot of money. Oftentimes you go in a Mercedes and go back in a bigger Mercedes called the Greyhound bus. <laughs> but every now and then when you hit it, it's unbelievable.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. And
1: 10, 15 years and back, if you got 100 episodes, regardless of what the show was, you were guaranteed to make a lot of money.
0: That's right. And now, no in, today's, longer is the case. And now in today's day and age, it's not 100 episodes. It's 88 episodes. Correct.
1: And and I think the first great show, uh, great as far as the number of years on the air, that didn't make it, there were two great shows that changed the whole game. One was Wings. Yes. Which had all these episodes, years. It was the most It was the biggest uh, anonymous hit in the history of television, I think. And at the end of the day, Wings was a modest hit in syndication, made a few bucks. Then they had a show that was the seminal change in the business. It starred this great television star, came off Cheers, Ted Danson. He played an irascible uh, doctor called Becker. And they had five or six years of episodes on CBS. Paramount funded it, and it didn't make a goddamn dime.
0: Didn't syndicate. Didn't
1: syndicated. Syndicated. I mean, if they if they put out, I make it up. A hundred million in deficits. Maybe the revenues they generated in syndication covered seventy percent. It made nothing. They couldn't even afford to syndicate it because the residual payments and stuff like that.
0: Huggable so, and lovable win the race. Correct.
1: Huggable and lovable win the race. So and that, think
0: you, about those two shows you just yeah, mentioned. Correct. Uh, I never felt that on wings the people were enormously embraceable. Correct. And I never felt that. Becker character right. was embracing. Yeah, I,
1: I think that there's a measure of accuracy to that. But 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 what what it what it does show is in the last thirty plus years that you and I have uh, practiced in this business as we ebbed into our midlife. Uh, I'm in
0: the final quarter of my life, Well, I, by the way. I,
1: my college roommate a few years ago when I turned 50 said to me, Really? I said, I said Richie, I'm now middle-aged. He said, Really? You plan to be 100? <laughs> so, so I, it's I, all I, over for me, basically. All, well, yeah, then I'm ahead of you. So. Um, but you, 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 I think the greatest, uh, the greatest ev- evolution of change uh, occurred in the value of these television assets and what they mean and that you only strove to get that 100 episodes, whether they were 100 episodes of China Beach, one of my shows, or 100 episodes of Murphy Brown, another one of my shows. Today, it's totally different. The model is different, the emergence of cable. You know, about 10, 15 years ago, we used to hear at these luncheons you and I would go to where these industry seers would talk about a 500-channel universe. Well, that became a misnomer, because they're not 500 channels, they may maybe a couple of hundred channels. But 10 years ago, if anybody came to us with our overhead and said, we want you to do a show for AMC or Bravo, we would start convulsing with laughter because there was no economic model behind
0: it. I know. The studios would never do those deals.
1: Never do those deals. I mean, we, we were a sister company, a big ticket with Showtime, and uh, and, and the, my partners would never let me do a show at Showtime. Today, you knock down David Nevin's door, who runs Showtime, to do a series because it makes money and it's and it's profitable, certainly for them. And it gives you some bones as a creative guy, so. But the, the, the I think the greatest sea change that you and I have observed in our our, our years in the business is the economic model changed. Yeah, and it changed uh, for some people for the better, and for some people for the worse. And the inciting incident for that was when they did the financial interest rules, which said that the broadcast networks.
0: When you say they, uh,
1: the broadcast networks got it. said, we we don't want to just license the shows, we want to own the shows. And don't be silly, we couldn't own all the shows because we couldn't afford it. And that's exactly what they did. And then they became, and then the studio said, oh, wait, 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 wait a minute, what are we gonna do? So what do they do, they bought the, they bought the networks.
0: Disney and, bought ABC. And
1: NBC was bought, uh, you know, now by Universal. And so you saw an, a, an enormous change that occurred and everybody aligned, Paramount bought CBS and Viacom and, and you saw how, and Fox Fox started uh, Fox Broadcasting, so now all of a sudden they owned everything, and so the economic model dramatically changed, and then the cable networks came into play, and that really upset the apple cart for everybody. Yeah. So if you were, I, I, we, we talked about this recently, if somebody uh, died in 1995, and you cryogenically woke them up 10 years or 15 years later and said, here's TV. You look around, you'd say, no, that's not TV. Who killed TV? Because it's really, <laughs> truly a wholly different world.
0: Wow. All right, so I just want to just, I we keep weaving back and forth, but this is great. So how do you decide that being an ICM agent is no longer for you and what's the next play for you? You know, the next play was going to Warner Brothers. But I mean, like, how do you decide like that like, what, what well, is, did I, you really, I, did you really, really, like, uh, just, because well, you were, you, you know, I mean, you get offers, because I think this is important for the people who are listening, is like, oftentimes we get offers, it's sort of like when you're, I don't know. If you're in a relationship and you you think you're in a great like, relationship, you're doing well, everything's going well, but then, you know, there's a knock at your door and there's a supermodel there and right. say, do well, whatever then, you want to me, and then you, you decide whether you can go with her or you stay with the person you're with. Like, how did you – like, what was it that made you know that, okay – because you, you know, the I'll weird you part it. is you've been successful at every level. Everything you're doing, you're quitting the job and going to the next yeah. thing. And I'm wondering what it is about the risk-taking that you decided to do. Well, to, uh, you do- know
1: what was the inciting incident for me? I mean, you, you being in the representation business, maybe you, you can you can understand this or empathize with it. Um, I think the <laughs> – it's going to sound nuts. Um, forget the fact that I got a lot more money working for Warner Bros. than I was making at ICM. I think the reason I left being an agent, because I love being an agent, because it gave you a purview of the business from a vantage point that was not available to anybody else, because you could be all over, was that I would work like, like you do. You're a slave to it. Phone calls at 10, 10.30, weekends are not uncommon, and they're never, I never they're once. They're normal. They're normal. I never once, this is the reason I left the agency business, I would slave away at a deal. I would bust my bricks to get a deal for one of my clients, and I never once had somebody say, thank you, Larry. And I think I finally said, you know what, screw this. You know what, never once did I get a thank you. And I also looked at it objectively and saying, I'm in the 10% business, somebody else will get 90%, and that's what motivated me to leave. And I always knew that I ultimately wanted to be entrepreneurial, and I knew the only way you could make a ton of money was to end up being a producer or owning or running a production company, which I ended up doing.
0: Got it. So you're at Warner Brothers. Again, things are going great. Having an amazing run. You're having an amazing run, one yeah, of the I greatest running runs. Running I mean, ladder it's and, unbelievable you know, the things. You're you're moving up at the company. Yeah. The shows you're doing there are, like, insane. They're like insane. I said, you know, Murphy Brown, Night Court, Growing Pains. Head of the class. Head of the class. China Beach. China the Beach. beach. They were, were at we a run and a half. It's incredible. And, and before we go to the next step, I want you to tell me like, from a from a perspective for the actors and actresses out there, when you were working on Growing Pains, getting back to that story, and you couldn't find the lead, and you're testing people, and you still couldn't find it, how did it come about that you found the guy, and where did you find you, him you from? Because in a casting perspective, what happens, everybody, is that you go out, and the casting are going to look and cast the net everywhere – people are coming in, there's tapes, there's putting on tape, everybody, they're looking at everything, they're testing people. When you don't find people, you ask the casting director to go back again. Sometimes you fire the casting director, hire another casting director, and she has to, or he has to bring in new people from different places, and it's a really tough thing. So how did you find the guy?
1: Well, it, it, it's, it is a great bit of TV history. Um, around that time, about a year before, we, we couldn't cast the father, the husband, and uh, there was a talk show that Fred Silverman did
0: that starred Alan Thicke. Of course, who we became know him very well. Has sat in this chair many times. Okay,
1: and Alan, Alan and, and and Alan Thicke's talk show blew up. He was a Canadian, came to America, came to America, came down the coast, and did this TV talk show. And he became a punchline for you know from the Carsons and Lettermans of this world. They really did. And he had done some acting. And we're now in the throes of, of, of starting rehearsals for our pilot without our lead. And we went through every possible person. We would have ended up bringing in one journeyman to do it. We had people. And somebody suggested, in fact, the guy was the guy who ran a casting at ABC, Gary Putney, suggested, what about Alan Thicke? And I remember the head of ABC Entertainment said, Alan, Lou Ehrlich, Alan Thicke, you've just blown our po-. We read Alan Thicke, he gave us a pretty good reading, and when Alan Thicke became one of the biggest stars in television, um, it shows you nobody knows anything. We cast Alan (laughs) Thicke, we thought the show was a guaranteed failure, we tested it (laughs) out. Guaranteed failure. We tested it. In those days, the studio would test it, and then they would share the test results with the network if it was good. I remember uh, my boss at the time, Alan Shane, who was the president of Warner Brothers Television, I was the number two guy. He was. He wouldn't even come to the testing. And I, and I, and I, I, I called him on the phone, and he was this elegant fellow, and I said, Alan, he said, Larry, how did you do <coughs> And I said, Alan, it went through the roof. He said, Larry, don't bullshit me. I'm drinking wine and a little loaded right now. It was on a Thursday night. And I said, no, Alan, it went through the roof. He says, I don't believe it. And uh, we, it, was so, it was such an incredible test. We retested it the following week. And it even tested better. Of course, when you shared that with the network, they would scoff at you. And their test was even better than ours. It went on and within two years became the number one show on television.
0: And Alan Thicke's uh, Thick career. Alan became was... a
1: perennial uh, leading man on television for seven years that the show had its run. Kirk Cameron became the biggest young star on TV at the time. He had a major movie career until he found the Lord, and uh, which interfered <laughs> with his particular career. Some people that might help. But it, the show became the number one show on television. And we had a similar stroke. You're supposed others.
0: to find the Lord and actually right. do well. Well, in his case, he did well. Then he found
1: the Lord, you know.
0: I remember, um, I, before. We, I remember Carol Liefer's line, one of my favorite lines for HBO uh, special was, she says, if you want to keep your seat on a crowded bus or train, it's very simple. As people walk by, they look at you and they say, excuse me, ma'am, is somebody sitting there? You have to look up at them and with those eyes and say, no one except the lord <laughs> and your seat will be empty the whole time well but sad. you're just about to say something about no, but
1: but but so the show became you know and and we had a similar similar situation with night court which also became the number one show on television we couldn't cast the lead and we went through everybody and we brought in harry anderson who was it was a magician who was a magician i'll tell you what it's a great story with harry anderson he came in to read and he was great but he's too young he was too young. The the role required somebody a little more gravitas. He was a judge, and Harry was ten years too young. He came in and I remember Rhino Weege may he rest in peace and Jimmy Burroughs director of the pilot.
0: He was one of the greatest one of the great directors of, time, of television of all
1: time. And uh, we got a call from Harry Anderson's agent. manager I don't even know if he had an agent said he wants to come back in please let him read again he knows he's right for this role. please and we okay come back in. comes back in the persistence of a representative and and he said I love this script in fact I love it so much I memorized the script and I remember one of the guys either Burroughs or week he said what do you mean you memorize the script he said I love this script so much I memorized the entire script he had a photographic memory and, he's, and, and, and So does
0: a uh, client of mine, Jay Moore, has a photographic memory, too. Jay Moore, too, is on the radio now yeah. doing sports here. Yeah.
1: And uh, he said, t- t- test me. So he opens up page 36, and he said, cue me cue him and he memorized the whole script he was he was unbelievable <laughs> we were like mesmerized by this guy and I remember we took him into to Brandon Tartikoff I think the other guy with Brandon
0: took him Tartikoff who was the youngest president in television yeah. history at like 28 and years had old or
1: so for the audition he was not in his office it was I don't know what was going on it was so interesting I remember seeing the tonight show in the background gearing up with the music uh-huh. like 5 30 in the afternoon when you realize you're in television you know you're really now, I'm no longer in Howdy Doody in the peanut gallery. <laughs> I'm a functionary behind the scenes, you know, where you're right. The real stars are and uh, except those you have who are stars on your podcaster. <laughs> and I remember Harry Anderson came in and blew us away. But there was great reservations that he was too young. And Bill Devane was the other guy I think we brought in, William Devane. Mm-hmm. And he was good, but not very funny. And uh, they were mixed as to what we were going to do. And we finally said, you know what, let's give it a rack. And he became an Emmy nominated actor, and that show also, with great trepidation, because the actor was miscast, we thought chronologically, that also became one of the, that, that, that that became the number one show on TV as well.
0: And for those of you who are listening in the audience, if you are an actor, you can see by that story of what you need to do to get to the next level, because Harry Anderson, wasn't even on a fucking list. He I wasn't
1: mean, even on the radar, man. He, nobody he, knew who he
0: was. Nobody knew who he was. The but there was the persistence of somebody who represented him. But in this day and age, to be honest with you, even if you don't have a manager or an agent, you can find the information of the casting director who's who's doing a show. <laughs> right. You can put yourself on tape. You can do it a hundred times, and ninety-nine of the tapes you you or uh, the video that you shoot could suck and one take could be the best and you can find the email of that casting director and you can send it to them and I guarantee them anybody listening out there they will open it they can't not open it it's like it's impossible for anybody to get an email and say eh, let me just press delete before I open it right. you can make your mark like Harry Anderson made his mark if you're prepared and you work harder than everybody else you can always win and Harry Anderson is an example of that and uh, in that story, right, there and he
1: went on He did a couple of series after that as well and, you know, really uh, made his chops. And he was a street urchin. You know, he's talked about it. His mother was a woman of the night. Uh, he was uh, he, he earned his living by doing three card Montes. And he was an amazingly eclectic, eccentric guy who uh, who was an amazing talent and who just fit into the role uh, in a way that was uh, supernatural.
0: I can't help but ask, uh, even though uh, I want to move on. Take me through the testing and casting process for Bull from Night Court, who was basically, essentially, Richard a, a lurch character right, from lurch from the character. Adams family. Yeah. How do you find a guy who looks like he's seven feet tall and
1: he? You know, it, you, you just do, and you know, you you you, you in the in the breakouts they talk about what they want they want this l- the l- breakdowns, l- l- breakdowns yeah the uh, breakdowns breakdowns <laughs> the breakdowns they they, you, they they describe the character and we had these uh, there were so many guys that came in with these lumbering ex jocks you know who couldn't you know, sp- you know b- weave together a joke <laughs> and richard came in and in fact there was one thing if you looked at the pilot of night court we had a couple of on the set in in the court sconces that looked like horns and jimmy St- a, a, a position to me. we got a shot of him we like horns. It was a brilliant. It was a sight gag mm-hmm. that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. But Richard Moeller was perfect. He was just this lumbering, uh, affable, accessible guy who was, you know, everybody loved him because he was enormous in his, you know. But yeah, he he was perfect. And 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 this never happened. You talk about casting. Day one, the first day of casting. The first guy to read for us went on to win Emmy Awards and became one of the great com- comedy actors in television was John Lauer Wow. Who played the character Dan Fielding, the, the prosecuting attorney. And he came in and blew everybody away. And I remember Jimmy Burrow saying, well, we got our guy. And everybody would say, he, he's the f- first guy. He said, you'll see. <laughs> and, he was, and he went, he, as they say in horse racing, I'm not a horse racing fan, he went from you know wire to wire.
0: So yeah. Jimmy just said, "You'll see," and, and he was right. He and you cast right. a, a very talented comedian from San Francisco, Oakland area as well, uh, which is, was very rare back then to, you know, to take the chance on a comedian for a supporting role. Was Marcia Warfield, I believe? Yeah,
1: Marcia Warfield. She was great.
0: Yeah. She so, was
1: great. Uh, and yeah, we had an incredible cast. We made some changes and modifications uh, along the way, but it became a. Uh, and then when we had the ninth anniversary, Warner Brothers commissioned the uh, the cartoonist Hirschfield, from the New Yorker, to do a, a, a limited 50 50 lithographs, a Hirschfield of Night Court, with the producer Reinhold Wiig surrounded by this cast. It, be, it became one of the when I when I when I go around and I speak to people or I meet people and they say, what well, what are some of the shows that you did? And and when I mention Night Court, everybody, Barry, to a person has a reaction like you did that night court. I love that. You know, it really had a mark and you realize when you're doing this, that television has a profound impact on the pop culture and that it is a. oftentimes television reflects the pop culture and at times it creates aspects of the sociology of the times. The perfect example is all in the family. Yeah. And so it is. So when you look at television, just as a medium of entertainment, it's obviously significant, but when you look at its, its its historical and pop cultural role, the profundity of the impact, you could make the argument that television, the invention of television is the greatest invention of all time, superseding even the computer. Wow. So that's, its, that's its impact.
0: That's a heavy statement. Yeah. So, okay, so you're successful at Warner Brothers. You're kicking ass. Right. And then you leave Warner Brothers. Well, I
1: don't quite leave Warner Brothers. I, I I segued into becoming a producer there because what I realized, part of my job definition was to help make other people... I did well, don't get me wrong, but to help make other people really rich. Mm-hmm. And I was doing well. And uh, and I became a producer. And, you know, be careful what you dream about. That's what I always dreamed about. I really miss the multitasking. I miss the action. miss hanging out with guys like you. Now I'm... I, I had a. They were great to me, but I'm now one of many as opposed to running the place. Yeah, and uh, I didn't like it. I did it for three and a half years, and I uh, had some success. I had a couple of series went on the air. Did a couple of TV movies, and
0: uh, and then I went. I to, believe you didn't. You get nominated for an Emmy for one of those. Well, one movies? of them, Yeah, my I
1: did a TV movie, a passion of mine. I did a biography of Babe Ruth. Yeah, that won many awards. I'm a yeah, big baseball yeah, fan myself. I'm a baseball addict.
0: I actually my my uh, dormitory at Boston University uh-huh. was Miles Standish Hall on Bay State Road. It right. used to be an old hotel where a babe Ruth, when he came to Boston, he used to stay in Suite Eight Hundred One. Is that true? Yeah, perfect. So yeah. I, there, there,
1: I, I became the leading lay expert on Babe Ruth in the in the country. I really did. I we, I submerged my submerged my submersed myself in this film. We did a biopic that Stephen Lang, the actor, brilliant actor, played Babe Ruth, and it won many awards. and uh, and, and there were three Babe Ruth biopics, and a preeminent uh, conference on on Babe Ruth and his impact on the twentieth century at Hofstra University of all places, did this academic assessment of Babe Ruth and his impact in the 20th century. And uh, they selected our movie as the preeminent biography over the John Goodman movie and over the earlier movie. So here I am, I'm a producer, I'm doing pretty well, but I'm not being satisfied. And out of the blue I get a call from the guys at CAA and they say, why don't you run Aaron Spelling's company? And Aaron Spelling was, you know, the greatest producer, most prolific producer in the history of television. The work that he did and the stuff that I did were very different. I didn't do stuff like that, but that wasn't. I wish I had his money, but I just didn't. But I ended up working for him for a year, and his company was owned by the Blockbuster people at the time, Wayne Heisinga and his partner Steve Burrard,
0: who owned the Florida Marlins. They owned the
1: Florida Marlins. They owned the, uh, they owned the, they owned the Miami Florida Marlins now Miami Marlins. They own the Miami Dolphins and they own the Florida Panthers of the National Hockey League. Yeah, and for a sports fan, that was mana from heaven. And I became, you know, close with these guys. And they ultimately, I left working for Aaron, and they funded me, and we opened up a company called Big Ticket Television. And this was like in the mid '90s, and uh, we became wildly successful. And I expanded my purview, which would only network scripted television, dramas and comedies, and TV movies into the syndication world, and in New your introduction, you were, you were kind to say that uh, about some of my shows, but one of the shows that we did outside of the scripted world, the first show I did in my career non-scripted was Judge Judy, which even today, 17 years later after its birth is still kicking butt, number one show on TV in daytime. And it opened up a whole panoply of opportunity for me and my company. Let's
0: go back, though, to how do you decide you want to do a court show, and how do you decide which judge you use? I
1: didn't. I, I, got a, I had never done syndicated television shows, although I understood syndication because of my broadcasting background. Mm-hmm. And there are two types of syndication. There's direct, We make it originally for syndication. Mm-hmm. And then there are reruns of, this, of, the, of the night courts and the, the cheers that go on, you know, 6 o'clock at night. So the two types made for you know uh, first run off network the reruns of the uh, two and a half men types and then there's originals for syndication right. Oprah Winfrey Wheel of Fortune that's Jeopardy right. Judge
0: Judy I'm working on one right now okay. with Bill Bellamy and John Lovitz uh, and, and Vivica Fox that's a half hour that's direct uh, syndication right. so, and, I, so I so I I know what you're talking and, about it's so. a, and but it's what's it's odd is that you're 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 in this new company. And you've never been in this never. world before. And, and, I,
1: and so what I did was I went around to every agent in town and I said, I want to meet the best and the brightest producing first-run uh, first original syndication. And I did that for a year and met everybody. And I remember telling my partners, Wayne Heisinga and Steve Berard, I've met everybody for the last nine months. I literally I went around every agency and they threw people at me because we had money to spend, as you probably remember, blockbuster money. And I remember saying to Steve Barad, we were having a meeting in Fort Lauderdale where they were based. I said, Steve, I met everybody that's supposed to be the biggest honchos in syndication. If this is the best of the lot, we're gonna kick ass. And we did. And I didn't have any designs in doing a courtroom show. And I got a call from an agent I had never met before. And if I hadn't met him, he wasn't in the business, so to speak. And he was a very small agent. And he said, uh, I have a judge who's just been profiled on 60 Minutes, who runs the family court in New York City and can i bring her in to meet with you and he brought her in and
0: blew me away so she was in new york she he was flew, here. No, he, she flew
1: he, she flew to to los angeles okay. and as i found out later on went to everybody in town oh, i they, was the last guy on the list i had never done this before went to all the logical and syndicates. they all passed on well her. they all liked her but in the room i said i'm ready to roll so literally in the room i said i'm ready to roll how old I'm, was judge judy then Well, i am how old uh, you know she was an adult she was certainly, I mean, I, I don't I, you know, Judge Judy at the time probably was in her early 50s.
0: Got it. Okay, you know. and so you said you're ready to roll, so you shoot a pilot. I, I said
1: in the room, I'm ready to roll, and you're going to have to give me an answer tomorrow, so I'm not going to be the stalking horse. And literally the next day they, and I, and I quantify what that was worth, how much it would cost to make a pilot, to market it, which is a big financial commitment. Next Plus day, you had
0: the cast Rusty. Plus, we had to catch rusty,
1: and so we uh, we uh, next day we made a deal. A few months later, we shot a pilot, and she had never done it before. And while she, there were moments of the pilot, we shot fourteen cases. But it was a little uneven. She had never done it before. And
0: you shot 14 cases, which is unusual to overshoot that much because an episode was basically just two cases. Correct. And we, we So you gave a situation where you weren't going to leave anything to chance, so you could have 12 cases that sucked, and all you needed were two that were great. We, we
1: actually had 14 cases, none of which were good enough to, uh, to the level that she's achieved. Got it. And uh, we were actually distressed. We had great moments of sound bites, but and 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 I knew she had great potential, but she had never done it. Each of the cases lasted thirty minutes; they had to last twelve. You know, we had a lot of it's like saying you're a fantastic high school pitcher. You throw it a hundred on the gun. You're the first draft pick in the major league draft. You're not going to the Dodgers. You're going to go to Double A, Single A. You're going to. So, you, you, nobody can be expected to step into it, even somebody as skilled as Judy Shyland initially. So, we did this, we shot 14 cases, we were able to cull together two, broke it down to do a little sizzle reel, presentation reel, and blew us away. And she was fantastic.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, you went to NatP. We
1: went to NatP. And uh, at the time, the only courtroom show that there was a courtroom show called People's Court that was off the air for seven years. It was a totally different concept than ours. People's Court were about only the litigants. Judge Watner was very serious. He Mm -hmm. had no personality. And ours was the direct opposite of that. And people said, I remember uh, the New York Times interviewed me. How did you know Judge Judy was going to be so successful? And I didn't know. Nobody knows. But what (laughs) I did know is I'd rather fail with her than not give it a shot. And that then becomes the, when you look about admonitions about success and inspiring people to persevere and stuff, the, the best for would-be entrepreneurs, this is more for the, well, you could say actors too, but more for the would-be producers or executives. It's better, if you believe in something, you never know the outcome. If you did, it'd be like knowing the outcome of one horse race. That's all you need to know. Or one ball game. When you know the outcome of one ball game, you can get rich, Okay. It's better if you believe in something to give it a shot and fail than not give it a shot. Okay? It really is. And that became my, my mantra. So I remember telling the New York Times, I had no idea. I've, I've been asked this countless number. How did you know that Judge Judy was going to work? I didn't. But what I did know is I'd rather fail with her than not give it a chance. And in this particular case, I got very lucky. She became enormously successful. So the
0: first year she goes on the air, And what it was happens? nothing.
1: We opened up to, a, to tiny ratings. No, in those terms today we opened up with a 1.4 rating today a one today 4. a 1. 1.4 1. 4 4, you're going to the moon Alice you
0: know I have a client who's doing a sh- new show called the test for Dr. Phil right. and Jay McGraw's right. uh, company right. and uh it's syndicated all across the country right. and what's odd is and you, we got the numbers in New York City like a 1.9 mm-hmm. second only to Dr. Phil but the rest of the country like Maybe a point nine, point eight, a one point seven. Well, you, but New York City, it's like monstrous. And and and,
1: and uh, we had a similar story. So we open up the judge. This is a good lesson for you to think about when you're talking to your partners about this. So we open up to a one point four rating. By the way, when we reached our peak, we were at eleven point eight in daytime. Eleven point <laughs> oh eight. God. Today we're over a seven still. But uh, so the show opens Incredible. up to one point four, and our syndicators are somewhat encouraged. I'm despondent. I want to jump out of the window. A 1.4. I'm used to network ratings where you do a 15 rating. I am B- I'm, remember I didn't I had never done this. I'm besides myself and we're creeping up as the year happened.
0: But the show didn't cost a lot of money. It so it, it it cost, wasn't that big. It didn't
1: cost a lot of money, but nonetheless I wanted it to work. I wasn't thinking about how much I was going to lose. I was thinking about this show's going it, to whatever it cost and it was nominal the first year, um relatively speaking. But I wanted to win, and I didn't want to lose. I wasn't thinking about how much I'm going to lose. So I'm going to say how much, you know. And we had a we had a station in Boston. That was the Boston
0: University station, to be A B U. Wow, that's so my saying, old that's my alma mater. You, you're going to appreciate the
1: story. Now we we couldn't get what they call coverage in a lot of markets. We were on these dog shit stations in a lot of cities <laughs> because nobody wanted. They didn't they didn't know who Judge Judy was. They didn't want to do a courtroom show, and we were scoffed at. So we go to Boston. We can't get a carrier. <laughs> and finally, WABU, <laughs> nobody ever heard of. And in the Nielsen book, Barry had a hash marks. <laughs> By the end of the first year, you know what that show did at 6 o'clock at night? A 5 rating. Wow. And a 5 rating. It had never done a, a .001 rating, and now it does a 5 rating. We then use that as the impetus to get us to year 2 and the rest is history and within 3 years judge Judy was the talk of the television business and by the 4th or 5th year we were doing 9s and 10 ratings
0: what do you attribute to her success like what is it about her and the show because again it's a genre the genre this core thing what in your mind like when she did become successful and you had the point to an example of why you thought it was
1: why is it successful. I'll tell you. You know why? You know
0: what the courtroom shows are? They are they are talk shows.
1: They, 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 the secret. I'll give you the secret sauce. They're talk shows, and, I, and, I, and I'll tell
0: you. I'll is this like you, the Coca Cola sauce? Uh, yeah. Uh, there's
1: a secret sauce. They're talk shows. The courtroom shows. And I'll give you an example. You have a talk show, Dr. Phil. You got uh, you got a host, Dr. Phil, Judge Judy. You got people that come in to Dr. Phil. They know each other generally, and they talk about their stuff. And at the end of the show, Dr. Phil looks at the camera and says, okay, you heard Barry, you heard Larry, what do you think? Tomorrow, men who sleep with their son's girlfriends. And our talk show, our host interviews Barry and Larry. They give their position. She asks them questions and stuff. And at the end of the show, she looks at the camera, so to speak, and she says, you know, Barry, you're an idiot. Larry, five grand. They're talk shows (laughs) with resolution. Seriously.
0: Okay, let's just assume that's the case, all right? So this is what is odd to me. You mentioned Dr. Phil. You mentioned Judge Judy.
1: Oprah, any of them. Montel, anybody.
0: Let's take Oprah out of it. Let's just take the, the confrontational kind of right. shows. Right. They Jerry all, Springer. They all have a guy in the lead who basically is the equivalent of the lead in a television drama they're not lovable but they're slightly you know they're slightly lovable you know you got there's something about them they give you this this percentage of themselves that make you want to love them but for the most part they're gruff they're not really that huggable and lovable and they're confrontational and all of those shows have that kind of person in the lead that's successful however on the other talk show level, there isn't the gruff. Gruff does not make it. Jimmy Fallon isn't successful if he's gruff. Correct. Leno isn't successful if he's uh, unlovable. Correct. Letterman even has that thing where he's Well, like, he's the gruffest. He's the gruffest, and he's still lovable and huggable. Correct. And so Kimmel, all those people, Oprah. Right. But on these shows that you're talking about... The ones that are the most successful involve the lead character that's like, I'm sorry to relate it to a show like Dexter because they're not ex murderers. Right. But you hey. got a guy in the lead chair that's like, is the kind of person who.
1: The antithesis of what you just described. Yeah. You know why? Why is that? Because different day part, different audience. Different audience. The daytime television shows are about story, they're all about narratives. Everyone. Whether it's Oprah, which she didn't include, or Jerry Springer, they're all about stories. The courtroom show's are about stories. The only rule we had, inviolate, the litigants had to know each other. It couldn't be strangers suing each other because they don't have the emotional component. Friends suing each other, relatives, colleagues. So that, that, that ramps up the, the narrative, and it ramps up the stakes. So it's a totally different genre, mm-hmm. daytime talk than late-night talk. Totally, it's 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 it, it, it. And your observation is very astute and very spot on. I'm good spring. for one a year. One a year. We had one in this last hour. So that that's what happened, and 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 the rest is history. And then we did an, another ta- uh, courtroom show because then after that now we're the doyens of courtroom, and everybody you know called us about. It. Because they, 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 television being derivative, there's seven or eight sh- courtroom shows in the next few years after our premiere uh, cropped up. And I picked this the uh, the only other one that really made it. That was Judge Joe Brown. And so we had an incredible run in the court show world. And I became the doyen of court shows, which is a, a small part of what my career was. But nonetheless, I'll
0: take it. A very small part, but uh, you yeah. will take it. Um, how long before... Um, Judge Judy's agent came knocking on your door saying, Hey, listen, uh, Larry, are you going to share the wealth a little bit for me?
1: Uh, Very soon.
0: (laughs) And so you don't have to tell me how much money Judge Judy made per episode in the beginning. Right. But what I'd like you to do is to put in this perspective. If Judge Judy got paid $1 an episode in her first season... Right. What's she getting paid an episode now? More dollars. <laughs> no, but like how? What, how, how many? How, more? how many times more? Oh, uh, I, 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 so much more. It wouldn't. I couldn't even calculate it. So relative it could, to the first season, could be like a hundred times more, a thousand times more.
1: Hey, not a thousand, but probably not even a hundred, but certainly more than fifty.
0: Got it. All right. So take me to your next step after Big Ticket and all the successes there. What, what was next?
1: Well, Big Ticket, uh, uh, I, decide, I, I just like I knew I wanted to be in TV when I was six, I also knew after doing it for almost 30 years that I didn't want to do it forever. I really didn't. I, I, I looked at people who did it. You
0: know. You had an amazing team there at Big Ticket. Yeah, you had yeah. Laura Schrock. Yeah. No. You had Paul Shapiro. Correct. We
1: had Paul Shapiro, uh, uh, Bill Sanders. We had some Bill really Sanders. good people. Bill Sanders. And, and the genius of uh, Big Ticket was I had really smart people who made me smarter.
0: They were a wonderful yeah. team. Yeah, yeah, I really loved too. them. And
1: everybody loved working there. We, you know, we built a company. We started with seven people. We ended up you know, being this billion-dollar company. I really did. And uh, through our assets, and, and you know whether, and we became enormous in the uh, in the urban comedy business. We we had the two uh, number one shows in African American
0: homes: Moesha, Moesha and then the Parkers. And the Parkers and with with uh, uh, a woman who Monique, went on to win an yeah. Academy yeah. By Award. By everybody
1: credits me. You know well, my, the lead of my bit's going to be Judge Judy. I know it. Hopefully, a long time from now. The
0: lead right? in your obituary.
1: Yeah, it's going to be Judge Judy, but but it should be Monique because Monique Judge Judy gets. You know what's it,
0: scary for me? You're already planning your obituary. I'm
1: not. I'm just saying. I you just know how these things are. The labor.
0: You were the first guest who's yeah. ever talked about their obituary. Yeah. You yeah. even abbreviated. You said, "Hey, my obit." That's how that's how familiar you are with your obituary.
1: <laughs> not quite, but I but 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 Monique, you know, became this enormously. She won an Oscar after our show, and Monique was the it was the best find because Monique had never acted before. Court. Judge Judy was basically doing what she did in real court. Uh, it's a different circumstance, but she was playing herself. Monique had never acted and came on and became this incredibly uh, successful uh, actress. I
0: remember when I first met her, she came into my office, and she was wearing like this leopard and black yeah, outfit. I and I said to her she was leaving, I said, you are like a 70s sitcom star yeah. with no experience at all. But I tell you... Yeah. It feels like you could just step on and she did. a sound stage and make it happen. You know, I
1: met her. The William Morris Agency brought uh, a, a cassette and her in the room of a talk show that she did for Fox, a pilot. They actually made it at Fox stations. It was not very good. And uh, I looked at her, and we were having some issues on Moesha with actors, and we were going to make some changes. And I and I said, have you ever acted, never acted? And, and I went to the UPN guys remember Moesha was a primary asset of ours it was a very important show into the black community it really was it was smart and true flavor and it was really is it was the first time that uh, African Americans were depicted as the as as upper-middle-class as opposed to the Jeffersons and you know where a bunch of white guys would write that. It, and our, you know our ours was an authentic show and I remember going to UPN and I said uh, I want to do a spin-off of Moesha uh, our writers came up with the Parkers, and we cast Moesha. Brought in Stan Latham, who was a very successful director,
0: incredible director, producer.
1: Moesha, and we brought in Stan, and we did a spinoff episode. And the show went on, became even more successful than Moesha. And it was an amazing
0: experience, incredible. And sitting across yeah. from you in our audience, this is the whitest guy in America. <laughs> he looks like the wagon driver in Roots, and yet he's creating yeah. the, the foremost so African American yeah, television. It's we, amazing. And we, did, and we
1: had this amazing thing. And then we had shows like Jamie Kennedy Experiment. That's United
0: right, State which was groundbreaking band. with facts and yeah. facts Bar and Adam Small. Right, it was
1: an amazing show. And they did a show called Gary and Mike for us. Yeah, which was a, which was a Playmated, claymation show. Right. So we. We had this an amazing business, and just to wrap this all up and I knew that i didn 't want to do it the rest of my life and then I got divorced not from w- number one number two, and that would be the last
0: i don't like it that you called your second wife number two
1: yeah. well the mother of my children
0: though the mother but, of your children but my but are you my, still friends with these women very good friends got it. very okay.
1: very good friends with certainly the mother of my children who we have
0: you know, do you have more women in your life now I do
1: I have somebody else but uh <laughs> so
0: uh, twice is not enough, right? You know? No, because you're this charismatic guy, yeah, like and I want to live vicariously <laughs> through you and yeah. know that I have a chance.
1: Yeah, but I decided when I had young kids and I was getting divorced that I didn't want to do it anymore, and I stopped. Uh, and, uh, and I, but I didn't guess, I did just didn't become Mr. Mom. I actually got involved in politics professionally for five years. And that's right. An and didn't you work with Joe Lieberman in his I, campaign? I was one of his media consultants on his presidential campaign in 04 and traveled around the country with him for a couple of years and, And segued on to work for Phil Angelides, who ran against Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm -hmm. Loved doing that. It was like, I think, the highlight of my life being in politics, but I was traveling every other
0: year, 30 weeks a year. Now, like television, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose.
1: It's a little bit, uh, yeah. In in, in television, you listen. We're baseball fans, right? The best baseball players make out seven times out of ten.
0: That's right. Okay. The one Hall of Fame fail seven out of The Hall of
1: make out six and eight. The guys, the greatest players in ten times make out six and a half
0: times. And what people forget, though, and I say this example all the time, but in the field, the best players, 97, 98 out of 90, 100 times, exactly. they're successful. And they play both ways. That's it's right. It's, it's an interesting. So they fail in one part, but then they go out the other half, of their game and they succeed to the highest level. Correct. So it just shows Which is you a little bit more
1: than a little bit of a little bit of a the of why is David Ortiz, who only plays one way, going to make the Hall of Fame?
0: And my answer is yes, he will after this World Series. My
1: answer is yes as well, but that's for <laughs> that's for the next podcast.
0: <laughs> well, that's okay. For those of you know, at the time of this podcast taping, David Ortiz is hitting like seven thirty-seven, seven thirty-seven right, in the World counting. Series. Yeah, and was, if he Carlos Beltran hadn't caught that ball at home run ball, I he'd know. be hitting like seven seventy-seven. He could go zero for ten the rest of the way, and he'll still an, get the an, most amazing
1: done. run. But so I, I stopped yeah. doing TV and uh, and I got into politics. And now I do a little TV, and I do some other stuff, and uh, you know I have this uh, interesting eclectic like life, and, and not planning my obit, but being re- real realistically, when you look about one's career, you you people cite highlights, and certainly the Judge Judy show became a major highlight for me and my company.
0: And you also got involved before we get on to the final round of this, you also did a venture with the blue collar guys where you you know, with Jeff Foxworthy and Bill Engville and Larry the Cable cable guy guy and their manager and producer JP JP Williams, who I started with at a company called spotlight you did York. i didn't know that right yeah uh-huh. I, I was there when he was there when he yeah. was dating a comedian named felicia michaels so you did that and you got involved with another aspect of comedy in, in the world that you know had yeah. you really hadn't been involved in so it's really interesting how huh. you've taken this trip yeah. in all these different directions yeah. and i think people should know how diverse you are and what thank you've you. done it's thank just incredible you. thank you and so yeah. let's uh let's move into the final roundup here okay. uh My uh, thing I'd love to ask you is, let's talk about the real holy shit moments. Let's talk about, you know, we don't have time for everything, but let's talk about one story that if you told it to somebody... They wouldn't fucking believe it. Something that happened, something in, you know, involved people. It could have been something crazy, something inspirational, something that would blow our audience well, away. Well,
1: my my, it's so funny you said that because there were there were holy shit moments, not so much that um, holy shit moments when you realize that the the power of 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 television and the power of celebrity and how. And what you're doing, because when you're in the midst of it, you don't realize its power. I, I, I can remember the, the three holy shit moments would come to mind. The first one, I, I went to graduate school in Chicago at Northwestern, and uh, and I would go back. I had a lot of friends there, and I remember it was the height of the Murphy Brown time, and I was uh, I went back to visit friends of mine during Christmas vacation, and we went back for five or six days. And uh, we went to dinner one night with this couple, a very good friend of mine and his wife, and we went to his restaurant in one of the suburbs of Chicago. And it was in a it was in a big mall. The restaurant, a great restaurant, and we, they were reservations were late, and we went to this bookstore, like a like a uh, Barnes and Noble, a, a Walden bookstore. I mean, remember those mega bookstores that very rarely uh, exist anymore. And they, I walked in the, in, the, in the store, and I looked at the magazine rack. You know, we have all the magazines there. And at the time, we had like seven or eight covers. We had Murphy Brown, China Beach, Dana Delaney. And I'm looking at that magazine rack, and I'm looking at all my shows on that magazine rack, and it was like a holy shit moment. What I do in Chicago, and these magazines were in Des Moines. They were in New York. They were in Oklahoma City. Every, and I'm looking at the Seven magazine covers we had. And I'm looking, what a holy shit moment that was. Wow. For me, it was like, wow. Because when you're doing it, you say, oh. Yeah, I remember. And another holy shit moment, I remember somebody wanted me to have years ago uh, lunch with, I forgot who it was. It wasn't Don Rickles, but it was somebody else who I didn't want to have lunch with. Let's say it was Rickles. It wasn't, but. And I remember a friend of mine from New York called up and, and it was right around lunchtime. He said, what are you doing? I said, oh, what am I doing? I'm dreading this lunch with Don Rickles. It wasn't, but it was somebody like that. And he went, what? I said, "Oh, this guy is." I'm dreading this lunch with this guy. And my friend said, "Larry, you're an asshole. Who wouldn't want to have lunch with?" Him? You know what it was like, and I didn't. You can appreciate it. You don't know this guy, but and then and then the other one I think uh, a potpourri of things. Um, I, I my car was parked at Warner Brothers right by Clint Eastwood's parking space, and we had some visitors and the, uh, the on the Warner, Warner Brothers and, lot. Yeah, the guard called me up and said, "You better come down here, Larry." And I was running TV then and. Mr. Eastwood's having a fit because one of your guests was in his space and
0: he was screaming at me.
1: And, and I remember I was having dinner one night years ago with Dick Ebersall and Brandon Tartikoff. I just um, thought that was Nature. Dick Ebersall was
0: also the chairman of NBC for many years. Of NBC Sports. NBC Sports, and sorry. I
1: remember we were sitting, the three of us, at the Palm Restaurant here, and right the aisle was Johnny Carson at the height of his career
0: and the palm for those of you who don't know in our audience a very famous restaurant here where there's caricatures all over yeah. the walls and, all over the palms now, and the you have to you have to go to the original one Los Angeles if Correct. you haven't. so keep going. And Johnny Carson I, I, was, Johnny
1: Carson is right across the office and I keep looking you know and they, they work with him and you know and Johnny Carson and his dinner ends and he gets up and we're at a booth for and I'm I'm with them as those two and me johnny carson sits next to me and spends the next hours talking to them i mean i'm i'm in the conversation shit, I'm in show business, Johnny Carson, you know. Wow. And then the other holy shit moment is... And your friend said, what an asshole, you no, had to no, name no, Johnny no, Carson. No, no, my friend, I was like <laughs> telling everybody about Johnny Carson. <laughs> and then I remember the last holy shit moment is I worked for Bob Daly at Warner Brothers when he was the chair, and he called me up one day and he said, uh, a very good friend of mine ran licensing there, Dan Romanelli, and they were doing a series of commercials called Air Jordan, for, uh, Air Bugs Bunny. Air Jordan, mm-hmm. you know, Air Bunny. And Michael Jordan did these commercials for for us with, with Bugs Bunny. And uh, they were doing a, 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 a Warner Bros. did a, a Michael Jordan movie. And I remember Bob Daly called me up and he said, what are you doing and, uh, tomorrow morning? I said, I don't know. He said, come with me. You can meet Michael Jordan. And we went over <laughs> where they were shooting the commercial. And Michael Jordan walked into the set, which was built as a gym. Uh, and I remember meeting Michael Jordan, just a few of us, and it was like, wow, Michael Jordan. Because it's rare when you meet these famous people like that, three-dimensionally, you know, you see them. And it's rare when somebody does what you and I do, where you meet a lot of very well-known people, where oftentimes you're saying, oh, the thought of having lunch with that person revolts you. But <laughs> when you walk in and just you like see Just like the thought
0: you had when doing this podcast. Right. <laughs> no, <laughs> hardly.
1: But anyway, so those are my holy shit
0: moments. Those are awesome, yeah. awesome. yeah. Tell me your biggest failure in your career.
1: Uh, too many to count. Like
0: a disappointment, the biggest failure disappointment. Mm. Mm. That would be in your old bit. That'd <laughs> be my <laughs> old bit.
1: It'd be my personal bit. You know what? I, I think my biggest, you're not gonna. going to laugh at this. I haven't done a lot of TV in the last six or seven years. You know, people ask me, and I've done a few things, and
0: Larry, doing other stuff. Larry, listen, you could be, yeah, literally, you could be taking models and sleeping with them on yeah, piles well, of I cash at this that. moment. I have teenage you have to worry kids and the
1: lady I live with, so I'm not... But I, <laughs> but, but I think the biggest disappointment, I think the biggest disappointment that I had is very recently. We, we have this news magazine show that is a uh, sort of a, if you will... Uh, a combination of TMZ meets E.T. meets Axis Hollywood in the urban hip-hop world, and we've got a great uh, host in Chris Spencer. I don't know if you know Chris Spencer. Of course. He was
0: the original host of The Vibe, Vibe. and And he was removed and replaced by Sinbad at that time.
1: Correct. And and Chris is, you know, 18 years later, he's done great things. He's an amazing guy. He also created,
0: just so you guys know out there, he created a, I guess you'd call it a digital short or a sketch for the BET Awards or some kind of awards uh, with Kevin Hart. And, and he's it now was doing this the real amazing, husbands, amazing thing, and they showed that, or it was seen by BET. And
1: now it's the biggest show on BET. And now it's the biggest show Cincom. on BET.
0: The uh, the the, of, the real husbands, the real husbands of, of, of Beverly Hills or something. Of Beverly yeah. Hills, yes. And uh, with on Love and and and, and Kevin and and, uh, and, and Smoove Alan Thick's uh, son and Alan Thick, son, Robin, Robin Thick, right?
1: But yeah, but and so we we were just recently taking the show out for syndication and. We've met with a lot of people and I don't think we're gonna probably sell it so it and you know, this could change, but that would be a huge disappointment. But you along the way there are a lot of there's not one that stands out because disappointments are short lived. Um, they don't. They, the, 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 mostly, the disappointments you have are shows that don't get on the air.
0: Well, I think people—that's encouraging for our audience to say that disappointments are short-lived, because I think a lot of people who are outside of this business and in this business are, you know, sitting around. They get home from whatever they're doing that they don't want to be doing. And they feel really down because the disappointments don't feel like they're short-lived. They feel like one day goes into one week, right. one week goes yeah. into one month, one month to one year. And before they know it, they're three years in and they feel like, you know, this isn't short-lived. So it's exciting to and, know that.
1: And, and it reminds me, and I, the show I just, uh, it's called The Take that, that we're, we're having a difficult time with with Spencer. We found this wonderful guy, he's like an Andy Rooney. And this is somewhat apropos of that. His name is Eben Gregory and he's a blogger. And he talks about things and he has a philosophical bent And he talks about. He has one little bit where he says, the problem with being unemployed, the minute you wake up, you're on the job. <laughs> and I think this disappointment to would-be actors and writers and producers is omnipresent. Because you, you, if you persist and you fail to get in, in the game, there's a constant sense of depression and, and the fact that you're unemployed and it's and the minute you wake up you're unemployed because you're trying to get employed. So I think there's there's no more exhilarating business than to hit it far in this world. Its impact is profound on the pop culture and on the sociology of of where we are and where we live. But it's tough man. If it was easy everybody would do it.
0: That's true. And
1: it and it is so tough and 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 and, which, it, which? and, and you got to persevere. And even when you persevere no guarantees you can do it.
0: Which leads me to my last question, which yeah. you're sort of touching on, and I want you to go much deeper because this is uh, one of the parts of the podcast that, to me, are are why I'm a
1: TV executive. Man, being deep is a risky proposition.
0: Well, <laughs> no, I, I think it. you're going to make it on I this think, one. I uh, think, um, because I think that uh, our audience really loves to know uh, the answer to this question from people who've been there and started at you know humble beginnings, where their you know mom basically tells them. Yeah, you know, that's not going to happen or right. don't do that or whatever. Right. Um, so it's a two-part question. What advice do you have for young executives or people trying to break into this business uh, or the business of their choice or whatever? What do they have to do to to get from point A to point B? And really make a difference, and really grow, and and move forward to a trajectory to where you are in the business. And then the second part of the question: What advice do you have for young comedian actors, actresses like the young Moniques or Marsha Warfields Mm -hmm. or Richard Moles Mm -hmm. or John Larroquette's or Harry Anderson's of our generation who are out there? who are somewhere in the country, in the world, in small towns, living in studio apartments, going to open mic nights, trying to figure out what it can be that will take them to the next level, and what advice do you have for them?
1: Well, I answer the second question first. There, there's an amazing opportunity now that people in the generations that you cited prior didn't have, and that's the Internet. You know, um, the, the problem with the Internet is that is getting attention for what you're doing. But you've got an opportunity to present your wares in a way that none of those people you mentioned had. The, in, in those days, you would either, if you couldn't meet a producer and manager or casting director or studio executive, you were sort of screwed over. Uh, today, if you really believe in yourself, you have an opportunity to put yourself up and at least demonstrate some of your wares. But that's not efficient because how do, you, how do people find you? So it's very difficult. Um, If you want to be in the television business, the first thing you got to do is come to Los Angeles, right? Mm -hmm. You got to come here Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you've got to know your medium And if you if you're whether you're an actor performer or a writer or even a would-be executive You've got to know the business and today there are opportunities to learn the business that weren't available to you and me There's so many uh, online opportunities, whether it's Deadline Hollywood, it's Variety Online. You can really learn about the business and the people who are the power brokers in the business by studying the business through the Internet. You really can. You can know what's going on. Uh, In in our day, you know, you knew what was going on by reading two papers, the Daily Variety and the Hollywood Reporter. Well, they've been eclipsed now, manyfold. And you can really understand, you know, how the business works. You can study the business. And, and if you really want to be in the TV business, you should watch TV. I often find people who want to be in the television business and you say, well, what are your favorite shows? Well, I like Breaking Bad. You know, and then, you know, they don't really watch it. They've seen an episode, you know. My 17-year-old son, uh, who is not a huge TV fan, although he says the greatest show in the history of television is Breaking Bad. You know, and how he watches TV, he watches TV on his laptop. You know, it's amazing. So I, I think there are uh, to answer your question, because there's a very broad question and there are no right answers. If there were, everybody wouldn't find the answer and do it. But if you want to succeed in, in a world that is difficult to get into, learn about the world, study it. And there are many opportunities by which you can study it today that weren't available to you and me 30 years ago when we were kids starting out. So that would be it. And then, you know, when you move out to L.A., you start going to the very if you're a comedian, go to the clubs, you know, try to meet the Barry Katzes of this world, because these are people that can open doors for you. Mm -hmm. And it's tough to find people without, you know, to to, to find smart people to represent you without credits. But if you've got a game, people will find you. I I really believe that. Uh, I don't know if that answered the question to the extent that you wanted it. And I don't know the profundity behind my wisdom, but I think it's as it's as simple and complex Mm -hmm. as that
0: wonderful, amazing, and I want to say something to you that none of your clients at ICM yeah. ever said to you. Okay. Thank you. You're
1: welcome, and it was good to do this. I'm glad we did
0: this, Barry. Uh, this is fun. It was awesome. Yeah, you was were great. amazing. No,
1: I don't know about that, but thank you. <laughs> and he says that to everybody.
0: No, no, I don't. Only one out of... people. (laughs) Listen, thank you very much. Uh, This is uh, another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And as always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name
1: Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame you get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you you you're going far Life is for the dreamer They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same
0: You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune